Two games, two points and two weeks for Norwich City to stew on, I think, what most people will feel was a week of missed opportunities. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast, coming to you in association with Future Radio. I'm your host, Connor Southwell, joined by Paddy Davitt to reflect uh, on Stoke, on Huddersfield and on the last seven days and also to look ahead to what awaits Norwich City after this international break. Firstly, we uh, will start with a, a slight, maybe an apology, I don't know if an apology is the right term, but obviously a slightly later pod than usual, uh, largely in part down to uh, Mother's Day activities. So uh, that did sort of skewer our recording uh, plans. I I, uh, I took my my mother for a nice meal, and I think um, your your, your uh, son was uh, was treating his mother as well in the afternoon. So the recording schedules didn't quite match. I won't bore you with the details, but that that was basically where we were on there on Mother's Day after what and 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 also I'm sure that you weren't too gutted about missing out of uh, what was a, a, an analysis of a nil nil draw. But we will we'll do a little bit of that because I think there's there's some really interesting stuff to talk about uh, the weekend's draw with with Alex Neal's side, not least the comments of Norwich City's former manager after that game as well. Um Paddy, let's let's start with a look at the week that's just been because we I think we we ended the last pod by suggesting that we felt Norwich City needed four points. They took two from those two games against Huddersfield and Stoke, but actually they have gained a little bit of ground on on Millwall, even though I think they lost some in, in midweek last week. So it is a three point gap to the the top six. How full is your your glass looking as we sit here a few days after that Stoke draw? Are, are you feeling half full or, or half empty as we as we sit from an Norwich City perspective? Um, that's a very good question, Connor. I think. Well, I mean, you're talking about yeah, that is true. I've got the table in front of me. They are three points in seventh position, but the log jam of clubs that they're holding up now. I mean, right down to Preston in twelfth, who were on fifty three points. I.e., that's only four points from Norwich. I mean, that's. That's that's any given weekend that gap can close considerably. So so in terms of you know we'll get into it. You know if Norwich are still as David Wagner certainly believes firmly in the playoff conversation, I think you have to go down as far as as Preston. It isn't just the top six clubs who are ahead of them who, who they need to winkle one or two out. Ideally, it's as I say five or six clubs below them now. And 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 in the context of two games post Sunderland where they've taken two points. Um, that isn't going to be enough if you move that forward. The other side of the international break, starting, of course, with Sheffield United, which is no easy task. FA Cup semi-finalists uh, currently in that second automatic position uh, for promotion. Uh, a point-per-game ratio isn't going to fend off the the Coventry's, West Brom's, Watford, Sunderland's, Preston. Um, so I still think I'd, I'd be inclined to, even if they've kind of held their position, allied to some of the results around them, it still feels as if, they're going in the wrong direction. And certainly, certainly since the, the high watermark of Millwall, which was only, well, four games ago now, uh, they've taken two points from the, the, the three after that. And the performance levels um, as well uh, completely, well, fallen off a cliff. I don't think it's overly exaggerating it for me. I mean, in all of the three games since then, they've had opportunities, they haven't taken them. And then, alarmingly, we've seen such a decline in performance you know, pretty much most of the Sunderland games, certainly the second half at Huddersfield and for large parts, really, of, of the Stoke game. And, uh, you know, that that is quite concerning, really, that, that they're actually, it feels like, going in the wrong direction when it felt after Millwall, both in terms of the result, the manner of that result, the quality of their goal scoring, the sense that players were now clicking in the right positions of the field, Zara a bit further forward, Sorensen coming in alongside McLean, 
you know, all of that, I'm afraid, uh, feels a long time ago now. And um, and I think for me, looking at it, you know, while David Wagner sounded a very bullish tone post post Stoke and almost wanted to reset it and 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 say, right, okay, forget whatever's gone before, forget the disappointment. We're now in an eight-game cycle. Uh, we need to basically harvest enough points to get ourselves in the top six. And then if you get in the top six, we all know then you've got a one-in-four shot of, you know, the Premier League. But that's the theory. The practice, not for me. I, I can't. I cannot see it. Not not with Sheffield United, Middlesbrough, and Blackburn all in that eight game run. Can any Norwich fan or, or media pundit, for that matter, based on the last three games, really think in the next well three, certainly those three opponents that we're gonna get we're gonna get the levels of performance to to warrant you know any any real optimism. So you know it's. Yes, of course, possible, but will they achieve it? I don't think they will. So, um, you know, we're probably going to find ourselves very swiftly, the other side of the international break, really then looking beyond the horizon of this season to to the summer and, and what lies beyond that, really, because uh, you know, I think the last three games particularly have underlined again, as it has done periodically this season, that maybe for, for, for some of the players in the current roster, you know, the end is nigh and it needs a bit of a refresh or maybe a big refresh, depending on where you stand. So, you know, we're still in a bit of a twin track where, yes, of course, it's possible in terms of where they are in the league and the points to play for and the points gap. But I think also we're, we're also probably more realistically looking at uh, the summer and, and what's to come. Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting. Uh, we're recording this on on Tuesday. On, on Monday, I, uh, I I did a, a bit for for Sky, and it was a, a kind of a playoff kind of thing. They were, they were they had fans or representatives speaking for for clubs of 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 different teams, and I don't think any of them put Norwich in their final top six, which is interesting. Like there were lots of calls for Coventry and even for West Brom, teams who sit below Norwich. But I don't think a single me included, by the way, didn't uh, didn't sort of wish to put Norwich in that top six hunt and it's, it's really interesting what we've got at the moment and I think we've had this for a little while but it feels particularly pertinent now where Norwich are, are three points from the top six but actually the feeling of that it feels like they're a lot further away and it feels like they they lack the minerals the characteristics to to break into that top six which which probably lends us neatly pad to talk about the approach that David Wagner took particularly to the Stoke game because it has provoked a lot of debate not least from from Alex Neal we'll come on to his comments perhaps more specifically in a moment but from from my perspective um and this uh, I guess how you reflect on how Norwich City approached the game on Saturday I think Ben Lee wrote this probably depends on kind of your outlook on football and how you like to watch football and uh whether I guess you you place any stock in performances or uh, even sometimes aesthetic of performances and, and setups. But I, I didn't necessarily like what Norwich City did on, on Saturday. I'm, I'm sure if you probably caught David Wagner in a quiet moment, he would probably tell you the same. It was a complete uh, step away from everything that he's been trying to implement since he took charge. It was a 4-4-2. They were very direct. They essentially tried to nullify Stoke. They pushed their their wingers um, really into deeper positions to try and counteract that. It was a, a very interesting approach and by interesting I mean pretty uh, well turgid maybe is, is the right word to use but then you've got to look at it on the flip side Norwich had a list of injuries Stoke were in really good form the confidence levels were probably quite low after a midweek draw to to Huddersfield there was a lot of players who were who had a lot of load on their shoulders there were players missing you can kind of understand why why David Wagner took that 
kind of tack. And I wrote about this on, on Twitter on the way home from, from the game on Saturday. And I, I'm, I'm probably still as conflicted now by it as I was because I can see merits for the people who said, actually, this Norwich City group with the players that it has, with how it was billed at the start of the season, should be performing better than they did. Also, you could argue David Wagner's comments so far, which has been based on how his team perform and how the onus has always been on his team. This felt a massive step in the other direction. It felt like a game plan to nullify Stoke, to prevent them from uh, pressing in the way that Alex Neal was basically licking his lips about beforehand. So you can you can take those arguments and you can take those merits. And then on the flip side, you can you can look at the injuries and you can look at Stoke's form and and, and all of those aspects. And you can probably make a case that this is a good point so I guess Pad where where do you find yourself in this debate in terms of how Norwich City approached it because as I said from my perspective I'm, I'm probably still a little bit conflicted it's probably one of those points that we'll actually be able to assess properly in the next few weeks well I mean there's a lot of points I would tend to agree with you there Connor but ultimately we started this pod by sort of hypothesis or going back to what we'd, we'd predicted or, or at least set as a benchmark, which was four points from two away trips. Now, if they'd have got the job done at Huddersfield three days earlier and at half-time, there should have been only one outcome there, given how dominant Norwich were, how poor Huddersfield were, then if you roll into Stoke and you've got three points in the kitty, a point, even in that fashion, Yes, we'd sign for that because Stoke, as you rightly said, I think they'd gone to Middlesbrough a couple of days earlier and, and we're unfortunate not to get the three points. And Middlesbrough really are, arguably, alongside Burnley, the form side in the division. So, And they'd won, I think, the two previous ones and scored a lot of goals into the bargains. So, yes, Stoke are, are on an upward curve. And in the context of taking three points at Huddersfield, I'd have had no issue at all with how he set up, how they went about it and the end result. But unfortunately, they were coming off the back of a draw uh, and a pretty dire second half at Huddersfield. Um, and in that context, I did find it a very strange conservative approach from Wagner. A Wagner who, hitherto, whenever he's been asked about opponents, he has a very stock line and that's we respect them. But it's about us and it's about us imposing what we want to do. And if we do that, we'll be better than teams in this division. And we saw that front foot, full throttle, to use his own words, that's his style of football. Would you label what we saw at Stoke full throttle from David Wagner? No, I wouldn't. So that was quite shocking, actually, for me to, to see how 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 reserved and how introverted almost Norwich were in their approach. I don't really buy the uh, the point about lots of injuries. I've just looked at the, the lineup between the starting 11 at Huddersfield and the starting 11 at Stoke. There was two changes. One of those was Marquinhos out, Jolis in. Well, obviously, Marquinhos appealed from his red card. That only came through, I think, on Friday afternoon. So you can imagine a lot of the tactical work and the shape work had probably already been done at that point with Marquinhos unavailable. So that wasn't a huge change. And then the other one, the, the only other change from the Huddersfield starting eleven was Puki in, either out. Well, we can probably get into a debate about Timu Puki and his effectiveness at present. But I, I don't think too many would have said that weakened Norwich in terms of what they could offer in, in the forward areas of the pitch. So the other nine were the same starters. So I, I don't, I don't, but yes, of course, there was no either. There was no, uh, you know, one or two others, no Dowell, obviously, originally anyway, no Arnel Hernandez. So his margin for for, for changing it up and, and making, you know, in-game uh, changes, that was a little bit more limited. We saw the bench was populated by Liam Gibbs, Abu Kamara, um, you know, I accept that, uh, but, but what I don't accept is that it was this 
injury-ravaged, patched-up side and you've got, I don't know, no disrespect, but you've got development players playing a la Burnley away earlier in the season when Tompkinson had to come in and play alongside Grant Hanley um, and, and, and Sam McCallum that night one training session after a long-term layoff and he was thrust into the fray at left-back. We wasn't in that territory at Stoke, far from it. So while, while I can see where he was going, I do find it very strange that, you know, that was the approach he adopted because it was Stoke. With the greatest respect, Stoke, it wasn't Burnley away. Um, this is a team who Norwich, if they'd have been proactive, I think they they, they go on and, and certainly make it more of a contest. I mean, a fundamentally, They've got a point, not because David Wagner's set his team up in a certain way. They've got a point because of Angus Gunn's defiance. That's ultimately what got them the point. It wasn't that Norwich nullified what Stoke were going to do. If that was the case, Angus Gunn would have been a virtual spectator. He wasn't far from it. So, you know, you could argue that, he, well, you could contend that even the, the approach was fundamentally, you know, flawed in terms of if, if, if the objective was to keep Stoke away from their goal and frustrate them. Well, that didn't really work. Look at the possession stats in Stoke's favour. Look at the shots. Look how busy Angus Gunn was. So, no, I've, I've found it very strange, a very, very, very strange approach from Wagner. You know, even if you want to drill down, Max Ahrens as, as a wide midfielder in front of Jakob Sorensen, did that work? Did that nullify Stoke in wide areas? No. Um, it nullified Max Ahrens, I thought, because it, we, we normally see him far more proactive, you know, in terms of fullback and getting forward. So, and Sorensen got... Hooked at half time, and, and David Wagner confirmed to me after the game there was no injury issue, which would tell you that fundamentally that 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 that, that didn't really work that that tactical plan. So, yeah, no, very strange, very strange. And then, you know, his post match. We talk, we'll talk about Alex Neal's post match comments, but but his comments that this was a step in the right direction because it's now forget what's gone before, forget judging this group by automatic promotion, forget any disappointment that that is in induced that that's not going to happen now and and just literally narrow the focus to you've got eight steps to get to the playoffs and then we'll take our chances in the playoffs and in that context to paraphrase him a battling point was almost his players taking on board the words that he'd imparted to them between Huddersfield and, and Stoke at their northern training base you know I accept all that and, and ultimately they have left there with a clean sheet and a point so you know he is right on one level but I, I just think from a coach who came in with Full throttle football. We will we will impose ourselves on the opponent. We didn't see any of that, did we? And and that was quite a radical departure in tone and in emphasis from David Wagner. And I, I don't buy that it was motivated by not having enough personnel to put on the pitch to really give it a good go. I think they had more than enough quality in that eleven um, to be better than they were with the ball. But you know, as I say, if we if we look back after Blackpool, the final game of the season and Norwich are in that top six and they're preparing for the playoffs, then you can't argue that he's got it right because this then will have been another link in the chain to, to get into that end point. And ultimately, I guess that's where he's looking at it now, is that he's got, in his mind, a roadmap which he needs to navigate to get Norwich to the playoffs. And if they have to go more pragmatic on occasion, then they will do. But it'll be interesting now. Now we've seen that from him. What happens with Sheffield United? What happens with Blackburn, maybe, more pertinently at Ewood Park? You know, What happens when they go to Middlesbrough? Are we going to are we going to go for parking the bus there? Because I'm not sure that'll work um, against those two teams. So, you know, yeah, I suppose you, <laughs> the last thing I'd say is I suppose it is another string to his bow, but it's not really a string any of us want to see too often played. Ultimately, 
No, I, I I would agree. I mean, just on just on the injury points, I, I felt he wasn't necessarily making the point that his his starting eleven was impacted too much from injuries. For me, it kind of felt like he was saying exactly the point that you made there. The idea that he would be able to rotate players who had maybe played twice in what was it four days beforehand. That option was then limited to him, particularly in those attacking areas. But again, whether you buy that or not is entirely up to you, and and and, and it depends. But what I what I would say is someone like Christos Solis, for example, um, I think he had something like 33 touches in the game. 19 came in Norwich City's defensive third. I've got some more numbers for you here. 36% of possession. And look, we we can have a we could fill this podcast with a debate on possession. It it doesn't ultimately mean that you're not effective, but obviously applied to what we saw in that template that we've just discussed. This is really interesting. Uh, Norwich have 36% of possession, which is the joint lowest of the ball that they've had all season. Um, that the last time they had 36% possession, which probably graphically illustrates the point about the statistic, was when they beat Swansea 1-0. And that was maybe a little bit more clear in terms of what they were trying to do. And Swansea obviously do dominate possession. Um, Norwich have only played nine matches this season where they haven't dominated the ball. This was this was one of them. Uh, and that felt to me slightly linked to what Alex Neal said pre-match. And, you know, he said he was, he was pretty much licking his lips when, when kind of asked about Norwich. And uh, the direct quote is, when you come up against a team with nothing to press, it takes your high press out of it. Well, that's what Norwich City did. Wagner certainly sought to, to go more direct. Norwich had fewer touches in the middle third of the pitch than in any game this season. That shows essentially that they were bypassing it, that the ball was going from the defensive third into the into the attacking third. And it was also the, the fewest amount of both short passes. They completed just 72, but also progressive passes. Listen to this, 15 they completed, 15 progressive passes. That's the lowest uh, number in, in in any game this season, and 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 probably the point is that was all by design, and and that probably lends us to to Alex Neal's comments, Pad, because he was very forthright after the game. I mean, you you were in the room, so I'll probably open it up for you to 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 start this. But essentially, even though he, he I guess questioning is probably a better term than criticizing, but I guess it indirectly it felt like it felt quite critical. His his words on on Norwich City. Just give us an idea of what it was like to, to be in the room and kind of, I guess, the context around those comments. Was the question that he was asked about Norwich City, was it unprovoked? How, how did that pan out? I was literally just, uh, yeah, as you were speaking there, I was just trying to, um, and I'm going to call them up now, I'm going to find the quotes. But, I mean, in terms of the background, essentially, no, there was no question. I mean, I had a bit of banter with him from, from obviously, we go back away uh before the press had formally started, I kind of sort of jokingly said, bearing bear in mind, they were, I thought they were decent at Carrow as well, but they got beat that day as well, didn't they? I said, how have you only took a, a point from the two games? And he shot me a, a look, which he didn't need to be reminded <laughs> wasn't, of that. It wasn't then, the curly finger, was it? <laughs> no, 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 no. And then I thought I'd soften the pill by saying, oh, well, at least you... And then I realised I shouldn't have come out with this one either. But I basically uh, said, well, at least you've got a good goalkeeper for your international team now, haven't you? Bearing in mind, Angus Gunnar just defied him single-handedly, so that went down very well as well. So, so I think I warmed him up basically because then when the formal <laughs> when the formal press had started, I, I think he was I think it was as, as as open a question from one of the local Stoke reporters of, you know, had what was your assessment or what what was your thoughts on that? And then he, I'll read it direct quote his first words: "Where to start? I thought we were the dominant side." Thought we were the better team. We spoke about Norwich and their DNA and how they try to play. And I think that's the first time I've seen a Norwich side come and play for a draw or go anywhere and play for a draw in the championship. Um, you know, the only way Norwich looked like we we're going to score was in transition, particularly when we forced the ball centrally. 
Um, I've every time, yeah, and to this, this tape follows on from your previous point about Norwich trying to bypass the high press. This time you could see Norwich not getting the ball out from a goal kick. I've not seen them do that before. Um, I felt they understood how good we were at pressing the ball. They gave us a lot of respect. I've no qualms with anybody playing that way, by the way. I don't want to make out they shouldn't have done it. However you want to play the game is up to you. It just surprised me a little bit because I've seen Norwich play for years and this is generally not their style. So I don't think you would disagree with what he said, but does he need to say it? That's that's the thing. And, and people might interpret it that he's had, you know, a little bit of a cheap shot there at Norwich, but it certainly wasn't in response to anybody who teed him up to give that context. It was very much that was his thoughts, and 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 he wanted to give those thoughts. And you know, I'm what sure does, he, what does he, he say about Norwich though? Those comments, like like you say, we could we could probably get into the the should he shouldn't he have said it? He, it's kind of irrelevant. He he has said it, and, and maybe we'll leave that debate for other people. But I mean, is he is he correct in, in in what he says? I think from the debate we've just had, we we would probably be inclined to agree with those comments, right? In terms of particularly less so about kind of the broader DNA point, but I think you could certainly make the case that since David Wagner's come in, it's the first time that they've adopted that approach, and we've kind of outlined why why he might have decided to to go down that road, whether we necessarily agree with it or not. But is that? I, I guess I, I don't know whether to call it criticism, so maybe I'll call it questioning. Observation. Is that, just an observation. It was yeah, is, that, is that observation fair? Yes, it is fair on this game because you, you just reeled off a series of stats which underline that for, for Norwich, that game in the context of this season, progressively with the ball, was was pretty poor. Very poor, in fact, with those metrics. So that, to, to zoom out a touch, does tell you that they did adopt, certainly in the David Wagner era, a, a completely different approach to what we've seen. And I think that's, as he said there, he was surprised. I think... hasn't been a Norwich manager, but has come up against Norwich teams and struggled against Norwich teams, you know, that's not the style to get into the DNA point that he would associate with Norwich. And I don't think any of us really, if you were a travelling fan at that game or you've been able to sort of see that, um, it was very, you know, I'd, I'd stop short of using the word viral, but but the actual engagement around that particular tweet from, from Norwich fans underlined that it did strike a chord. And, and I think I wrote about it then on the Sunday that those comments actually cut to the heart of probably then when Wagner followed on, when he when he followed him in, in the press conference seat immediately afterwards, that this deficit between expectation this season and the reality. And, and, there is, and there is this inherent struggle, it feels, all season, you know, spanning Smith as well as Wagner, where... I think we all expected more and it hasn't happened. And why is that the case? And, and certainly to bring it right back to what we saw on Saturday, I don't think before a ball was kicked, anybody could have really predicted that Norwich would go with that attitude, that approach to effectively, as Neil said, come and play for a draw and try and stop Stoke playing um, and show them that respect. So, you know, it, for me, it's everything he said was spot on. And and I think most Norwich fans w- would have agreed as well, but you know whether he needed to say it or how he said it, then yeah, we can debate that. But but ultimately, you know, I'm sure he was frustrated because he probably felt um, that he was going to be setting up his team to counteract a certain Norwich, and uh, they, they completely blindsided them in the way that they they played it. And then the fact that although they managed to work it out in terms of who was the dominant force in the game, they couldn't find a way past Angus Gunn, and you know he'd have been frustrated because he knows off the back of two or three very good results 
there was a win there that went begging. So um, I think there's probably a little bit of frustration, you know, the fact that he's come straight in after the game and knows he's probably left him and his team have left two points out there. But in terms of what he said regarding to Norwich and, and their approach, I don't think anybody could take issue with that because, as as you rightly pointed out with those stats, that very much was how it panned out, that, that Norwich tried to uh, tried to stop Stoke playing. And um, and again, David Wagner is left with a point and a clean sheet. So he would he would probably contend that uh, that actually worked. But, you know, given we started this pod talking about um, Norwich's playoff chances and really turning the heat up on the top six, does a point away from home play, playing in those in, in that fashion, does that really constitute a team who are looking to, to really build some momentum and, um, you know, pile up the wins? Not for me. So, you know, ultimately, it's a point closer to where they're trying to get to. But um, I think that probably plants a few more seeds of doubt rather than, as I say, post Millwall, it was get out the way, Norwich are coming through and you should be very fearful if you're a Middlesbrough, a Luton, a Blackburn, Millwall. I don't think any of those sides, if they were to watch the tape of that game at Stoke, would uh, would be too bothered or, or too concerned about coming up against the Norwich team at the minute. No, and and there's a wider debate to be had and it, and it is surrounding the expectation, as you said, should a Norwich group with the, the quality that, that, we, that everyone has, has been talking about this group possessing, but we haven't necessarily seen them realise throughout this season, should they be setting up in that way? Injuries or no injuries? You mentioned there it was only two changes. I think most people would have looked at the, the team sheet and, and said, OK, that, that Norwich squad, yep, there's absentees on El Hernandez, Kieran Dowell, OK, OK. But actually, if you looked purely... Uh, side by side, 11 by 11, you would say that Norwich were probably capable of making it more of a game. And, and that's not to say that they didn't need to have those defensive elements that they added. I guess the frustration comes from the lack of attacking thrust and a lack of maybe even ideas after that. But again, I, I'm kind of saying things and know that if you got David Wagner on this, I'm sure what he'd be saying, well, brilliant. We frustrated Alex Neal. Excellent. That's what we that's what we came to do. We caught him on the blind side. Brilliant. That's that that shouldn't be that shouldn't be from his perspective. I'm not necessarily saying I agree with this, but I'm sure he would argue that um well that shows that we set the team up in the right way to go and get a point. Now, as you say, ultimately they got a point because of Angus Gunn, not because they were really structured from a defensive perspective. But this point around expectation, I think, is is the one. And it's the one that's persisted all season because and this is where maybe I, I have a slight issue with David Wagner coming out and asking people maybe to lower expectations or um, park expectations because, and again, not really a criticism of him because he won't be, in a, be aware of exactly what was said when and who said it and he hasn't been in charge for the full season. So I don't want this to be a criticism of, of him. But, and we said this a few times on the pod, the expectations that were placed on this group were set by people who worked for the club. They weren't set by fans. They weren't set by us. They were people who came out in the summer. They also came out again after the managerial change and said, this is a group that should be getting promotion to the Premier League. So that's what they've been judged against. That's the bar. Whether you think that this squad has enough quality or has the minerals capable of achieving that, those are the expectations placed on this group, not by anyone else, but by those people inside the football club. So to use that expectation point, Pad, is is there merit in that to say this group of players with the money that has been spent on it across a few seasons, poor decisions or, or, or good decisions, that, that money is, is still what they've spent on it, with aspirations of going up through the playoffs, which probably rounds off this part of our debate nicely, should it be showing a bit more ambition away from home, irrespective of the context that we've wrapped around this this debate? I guess that's probably where a lot of Norwich City fans ask themselves or find themselves when thinking about Saturday's draw? 
Absolutely, yes. And I, and I don't want to keep labouring the point, but to draw the parallel with Millwall, they've gone to a Millwall who were above them in the table that day, who hadn't lost at home in the league, new, the new den, the den, very intimidating place, as we all know, since mid-September, and very recently drawn with Burnley and beaten Sheffield United. That, on the face of it, should have been a much tougher set of circumstances for Norwich to encounter. And what did they do? They went there proactively, fell behind as well, pretty calamitous goal from a Norwich point of view. So fresh adversity on an alre- on top of an already very difficult equation. And uh, they were magnificent. They were magnificent. They, they were bold. They were progressive. Razor sharp in terms of attacking play, which is something they've singularly lacked subsequently. And then, as we all know, as the game panned out that day, Millwall get a goal back, 3-2. And it was an Alamo job for the last 10 minutes. Balls raining into Angus Gunn's box. Grant Hanley, goal line clearances, bodies on the line. So how how can in in the space of three games we get what we got at Stoke? I just, I just I find it very hard to comprehend, um, irrespective of the mitigation, because there was a much for me tougher problem to 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 unpick going to Millwall, and um, and they found a way. So why why couldn't that group of players done likewise against Stoke? And talking of the players, this idea about expectation and, and reality and as you say internally the expectations were set even we're recording this Tuesday morning even as most recent as yesterday afternoon Monday afternoon Andrew Obama Daly he's away with the Republic of Ireland squad he's done some media with the Irish journalists they've obviously asked him about Norwich and the situation there and, and he's quote I think we have the squad we weren't really expecting to be where we are to be honest but we're in the position we need to knuckle down and grind out results there you go. So even in the last 24 hours, directly from inside the camp, a player talking in the terms of, we did, well, we know what he means by that. He means that they felt they would be in a Burnley situation or a Sheffield United situation, maybe at worst Middlesbrough situation, just on the outside of the top two, not seventh trying to play catch up. So so that, that clearly is why Wagner, I think, um, came out and proactively for the first time after the game Saturday, talking about where they are in the table, where they are in the standings, what's gone before, what needs to be parked, and the resetting of the goals. As he said, you know, they don't, and he's right, they don't have to wait 12 months to try again. They just need to turn the expectation down a notch, which is playoffs instead of automatic. But the end goal, i.e. the Premier League, is the same. So everything he said there was, while it was illuminating and revealing, it's factually correct that they are very still capable of galvanising themselves to get in the playoffs firstly and then taking a chance in the playoffs but the reality is you can only really uh, you know talk about it through an optimistic tone if you almost sidestep the last three games and go back to Millwall and, and unfortunately that's not how it works they're coming off the back of three pretty unconvincing performances and two points from a possible nine. That's not going to get the job done over these last eight games. So that's why it's still very much, you know, dare I say, a leap of faith uh, to sort of row in with Wagner's, let's change the mindset, let's refocus and let's reset and, and hope rather than expect that they can emerge the other side of the international break against Sheffield United um, and get themselves powering in a positive direction. Now, of course, the nature of this, if we, if they do perform as we know they're capable of under David Wagner, because we've seen it, home and away, and get the job done against Sheffield United, 
both in terms of performance and result, then the nature of what, what how we all consume it, everything will be positive again, and and a lot of these sort of doubts and and the negative undertones they'll get washed away, and it'll be bring on Borough, bring on Blackburn, bring on the playoffs. So that's the nature of it, and that's why he's right to stress that you know this isn't an impossible task now from where they are. It's very achievable, but. As I say, we'll go into that Sheffield United game hoping rather than expecting because of what we've seen in the previous three games. Yeah, and it comes back to what I mentioned right at the start, it being three points, but actually the feeling being from a lot of people that it feels pretty insurmountable, which is um, really interesting. I'm not sure I've seen a split like that where a goal is so achievable and and yet still feels so far away. It feels a lot further away than it is in in reality. And I think you, you're right to say that some of that is is down to the performances and, and and probably the last week of what we've seen and maybe the fear now. And obviously this will only be confirmed one way or the other after the international break. That maybe what we've what we've seen to date was a little bit of a bounce and, uh, and maybe that beginning to suppress a little bit because this group of players and um, I put the numbers in in the six things this week if you compare the, the first 12 games of this season that Norwich had under Dean Smith and the first 12 games that they had under David Wagner actually Smith took two more points so that's um, that's an interesting one to to add and, and what, what, what I did want to speak about a little bit because we spoke about uh, creativity and uh, I think I, I kind of said this I, I don't know if I said it in last week's podcast or in a verdict but a uh, fear that maybe they were running a little bit hot in terms of their their, their goal scoring. Um, that's certainly what the underlying data suggested in terms of expected goals. It's not to bring that to your door again, but that's that's certainly what what all of that suggested. Um, Creativity has been an issue throughout this season. And, and actually, Pad, I know you put this question to David Wagner. Uh, when would you put it for him? Before Huddersfield. So it's, it's worth reading these statistics. Norris City's three strikers at the moment. Temu Puki is currently enduring his longest barren run um, since the second half of that Premier League campaign in 2019-20. Obviously, he hasn't had a run in the Championship like this for Norwich City either. Um, I don't think he's scored in 13 games now. Um, maybe, maybe maybe slightly less or slightly more than that. I uh, don't have the numbers to hand. Josh Sargent, who, who's the top scorer for Norwich this season with 11 goals, um, since returning from, from the World Cup, he scored two goals in 14 games. That compared to nine in 19 before uh, going to Qatar. And then there's Adam Ido, who's only scored once all season, uh, of course, against Reading, and, and he's yet to, to find the net since David Wagner arrived. And in Norwich, you've got this weird kind of uh, issue where they've they've scored, I think, 20 goals under David Wagner. Um, they've scored three, or, three goals or more in five of his opening 12 games, but they've also failed to score in five. So they either score loads or they score none at all. It's, it's a really interesting uh statistical quirk that they've got going on at the moment um but in terms of those strikers pad i mean it it does feel like a, an issue we we speak about timing runs and we speak about surges and we're going to talk later on in the show um about the final eight games and setting themselves up for some sort of charge they they can need one of them at least to find some sort of goal scoring form that at the moment doesn't really look like happening no, and for me, that was encapsulated perfectly six minutes into Saturday's game. Jolis, lovely step inside and ball to Sargent, who has the keeper to beat. And and I don't know what on earth it's still, even I've watched it back a few times because he hasn't hit the target and almost like the ball's got trapped under his feet. And then just to his left-hand side, and I'm not advocating that he should have squared it, but if he had, Pookie's got a tap in. And uh, I thought it was very telling Pookie's reaction to uh, as the ball dribbled over the, over the goal line. But that you know that encapsulates what the issues are really at the minute in terms of the final third and two players I've mentioned there who you know when they were sort of neck and neck ten goals eleven goals each you thought that they're going to finish up around the twenty mark both individually and uh, 
<laughs> there's plenty of work to do if that's going to be the case. Um, and I don't know, you know, I haven't really looked into it in great depth. Is it, is it the chance creation element to this rather than, you know, they're getting the chances and they're just not taking them. I don't recall Pookie having too many sighters on Saturday and, and Sergeant, you know, had that one, um, you know, Adam Eder, was it the Birmingham game uh, or the Cardiff game? Maybe it might have been when Hernandez has put him through uh, early in the second half and he's gone around the keeper and, again, a bit of composure and he's just skied it into the Barkley. You know, they've had really good opportunities, those those three, to, to, to sort of start ticking up again in terms of the goal count. And the fact they haven't, it, it, it all flows for me into this sense that, you know, it they're going to fall short and they're going to be deficient. And it's not just one area or one thing you can put your finger on, that there's a lot of issues there. That, and, you know, the whole thing with Pookie, of course, and the contractual situation there, is he in, in the final throes of a, a very distinguished Norwich career? But, you know, Ida now with this injury issue, although it seems like he's joined up with the Irish camp to get assessed by their medical team. But Wagner, after the game Saturday, was very clear. You know, he'll be out for a number of weeks um, with a swollen foot, but not broken, they hoped. Um and then Sergeant, yeah, Sergeant post World Cup has, has not been the Sergeant pre World Cup, so it's it, it must be troubling, surely. I mean, as I say, if you if you break it down and look at the volume of goals they've scored over the entirety of David Wagner's tenure, you probably don't think there's too much of an issue. But drill down a bit deeper, and um, you know the the lack of goals from your your three forward players, albeit they've all to varying degrees had periods on the sidelines of injury of late. Um, that's not going to get the job done, is it? Because if you're not if you're not getting any goals from the top end of the pitch, and then it, they start drying up from Gabi Zara or you know Nunes or, or McLean even, um, and there's no Dowell of course now until probably the back end of April. Then it, where are the goals coming from? So I think it is an issue. Yes, it, it, he was very dismissive when when I put that to him, and that was pre Huddersfield. So you know it's it's rolled on again, and those trends, regressive trends, have continued unabated. Um, his 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 sort of approach was well. They're proven goal scorers and um, and and they they will score goals. It's just a case of when rather than if. But how many more games need to to sort of slip by and and there's there's nothing to show from Sergeant or Pookie in terms of their goal count um, if we're discounting either for the foreseeable. So it's it's a big issue. It's a big issue and it's not the only one David Wagner's wrestling with. But they have to unlock the goal potential from those two particularly, but also more broadly in the final third because I think. You know, one majestic counter aside at Huddersfield, which ended in Gabby Zara slotting from Adam Eder. I don't think we've seen enough in the last two games. As I say, bar that maybe that golden sergeant chance early on at uh, Stoke uh, to, to, to necessarily convince you that this side are going to uh, going to be getting back amongst the goals anytime soon. But but whether that is purely down to individual elements or whether it's a broader, we've talked a lot about the tactical approach at Stoke, whether it's a, a broader thing he needs to look at in terms of creating the chances and what they're trying to do in terms of midfield going forward with the ball. I don't know. I'd probably have to stop and have a bit more of a considered thought process about that. But but you can't argue with those numbers. Those numbers in terms of goals from the front three strikers aren't aren't good enough. And, and if they don't change, then you know I don't think they'll make the top six anyway. But if they don't change, then they very much won't make the top six because I don't see who's compensating if your front three strikers aren't going to weigh in with goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um I think it probably is a chance creation issue, to be honest. You're right. I don't remember Temipuki 
uh, in particular, having having too many clear opportunities of late. I mean, he's got eight assists this season. He, he got nine in in the, in the first year that they went up. This is his highest number since, and I think we're seeing him drop a lot deeper and having to involve himself in plays, picking up positions that are slightly wider, uh, almost out of sheer frustration to to come looking for the ball which obviously isn't his strength. I think it was him who played a lovely reverse pass to Christos Solis at Huddersfield, wasn't it, for that late chance? So, um, yeah, it feels like his role has, has changed a little bit more to try and be the chance creation rather than the person at the end of it. But often if you have him chance creating, you, you kind of need his quality to finish the chance as well, which uh, which obviously hasn't been that. And that's before we maybe get into the issues around his contract and, and, and perhaps even where his head is at at the moment. One player I, I did want to mention on, on a positive notepad, and we've kind of mentioned him throughout this pod so far, Ang- Angus Gunn. I mean, what what a week it's been for him. Called up for, to to Scotland, obviously confirmed after the Sunderland game that he was switching his his allegiance to to Scotland. Twenty seven years of uh, of age now with uh, Craig Gordon out. Obviously, I think he suffered a really nasty double leg break towards the start of the season. Alan McGregor, uh, obviously David Marshall as well. You've got three goalkeepers there who've all played for Scotland who uh, have come probably to the end of their cycles and uh, and are in. The, the very twilight of their career. Uh, he's got Liam Kelly and, and Xander Clark um, among some others to to compete for. But there's an opportunity there that uh, a carrot that Steve Clark has dangled in front of him and the others to to try and stake their claim to be Scotland's long term number one. Obviously, I think it's probably a mission that that Brian has been pushing for a long time. We know how proud a Scotsman he is. But then throw that in with the performance on on Saturday, as you uh, as you wrote actually and and said uh, on the day, there are a few times where it basically felt like it was Stoke City versus Angus Gunn rather than Norwich City. Um, his his form of late and and his form this season has has been remarkable, isn't it? it seems now utterly bizarre that there was even a debate at, at one point, or that he couldn't get into this Norwich City team. I don't want to go too early because I think we'll, we'll probably have a podcast later down the line in terms of player of the season and and all of that and all of that stuff. But in terms of where he's at right now, and he, he said after the game when he's speaking about his Scotland call-up that he, he was in a position largely because of Norwich and, and a run of games and a really decent run of form. And uh, I've had a dive into some of the numbers, which I won't bore you with, but, the, but they're very positive as well. There's, a lot of them suggest that he is one of, if not the best shot stopper in, in the championship. I mean, he is um, in, in what has been a, a season of real negatives. He's been a real positive, hasn't he, his form? Oh, very much so. Yeah, I mean, it's almost well, not quite the parallel because I I don't envisage them dropping down to the the realms of fourteenth as they were in that first Barker season. But in terms of a disappointing season for the team, but who lit that season up? It was James Madison with a uh, you know a wonderful series of goals and assists, and it feels a little bit like that that there is one standout candidate for that Player of the the Year, and and his name is Angus Gunn, and. Uh, that said, though, I thought it was quite interesting. Again, Wagner, um, I can't show if it was after the game Saturday, whether it was just before the game. <coughs> excuse me, when uh, when when he'd just been called up and basically saying he did. It was words along the lines of, uh, "Since I've walked in the door, he's Im- immeasurably improved." So clear, and we know, and you touched on it there, Connor, the fact that it was Tim Crawley went to for for Preston and Coventry, and I think it was Burnley, and then he obviously came out the side. David Wagner clearly walked in the door and felt thought Tim Krull was was the better option of the two and and certainly wasn't taking too many soundings about where Angus Gunn had performed to that point of, the, of a disappointing season. Um, but yeah, the normal service has been resumed most definitely, and and, and there's no doubt Wagner now is uh, of a mind that it is Gunn it, very much it's Gunn and and it was interesting after the immediately after the game Saturday final whistle Wagner's assistant Christoph Bueller strides onto the pitch. 
straight to Gunn and gives him uh, wasn't quite a bear hug, but it was a warm embrace. And it was almost like you've bailed us out of jail there today, Angus. And um, there's absolutely no doubt that, uh, but for Angus Gunn, Norwich lose that game. So um, it, it was it was fitting, really, that, it, that you know, between his call up and, and then going off to join up, he's he's bound he'll, he'll bounce into that Scotland group because on a personal level he must be full of confidence. You know, there were some quotes from Kenny McLean we picked up, uh, his Scottish international teammate as well as his club mate, who said he's one of the best keepers he's worked with and that he's basically been Norwich's best player. Bailed him out on numerous occasions, and I don't think anybody who's seen Angus Gunn at close quarters this season would dispute that. And at 27, you know, he should be in keeper terms anyway. Still, probably not even in his peak. So if he can play regularly for his club and establish himself as Scotland's number one. They've got, I think I just had a check there. I think Cyprus is the first qualifier this weekend. And then they've got the small matter of Spain. Well, well, what a game that is to play in against the array of talent the Spanish have to call upon next week. So, you know, that can only, in terms of his personal development, kick him on again. And Wagner alluded to that, that he thinks he'll take the next step up in his stride and it'll benefit Angus Gunn and it should benefit Norwich as well to be playing at that level and performing at that level. And, um, you know, there's a lot, it feels like, if we broaden it out into what needs to happen in the summer, if it is to be another championship season, there's a lot of unresolved issues and, and, and sort of feelings of end of an era around some of the personnel. But you can guarantee if Wagner is building a nucleus, Angus Gunn is absolutely pivotal to, to that, to what happens next, i.e. beyond the end of this season. Yes, uh, absolutely. Sorry, I was uh, in the middle of trying to look up his contractual situ- situation just to merely suggest that if that was in the realms of the, the the next two years or so, they might want to get on with renewing that because the way he's performing at the moment, it, it's 2025, so I think they're probably all right two years, haven't they? Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that his form of late may well prompt conversations about a new contractor at some point, which would be thoroughly deserved. It's going to be really interesting to see how he, how he gets on with Scotland and actually considering the goalkeeper that came back to Norwich City on a permanent transfer, one that was maybe lacking a little bit in confidence and self-belief in uh, game time as well, to have gone on the journey that he's gone on to now be in a position where he is firmly Norwich City's number one and pretty comfortably, I think, is a, a remarkable story. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Obviously, eight games left to play and I don't want to preempt anything, but at this moment in time, if I think if you were to ballot a lot of Norwich City fans, he would be uh, at the top or right at the top of the uh, player of the season nominations as well. Before we uh, come to look ahead, I, I did want to, uh, we've had a question that's uh, come in. Of course, uh, if you listen to this podcast, and you'd like to pose a question for some discussion or you'd like to provide an opinion yourself, you can get in touch with us through social media. Uh, we're on all of them. And Paddy said that if we get 10,000 uh, 10, followers on TikTok, that he's going to dance for you all. So there's an incentive for you. Um... <laughs> That's the first I've heard, Connor. That's the first I've heard. 10,000. What are we on now? I don't think we're anywhere near that, are we? No, I, I don't think we're even on a thousand, but we are we are on TikTok somewhere. If you can find us, that's a nice challenge for you. But uh, if you go on social media and uh, and put a pink in into uh, all any channel that you wish to find us in Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, you'll be able to do so, and you can get in touch with us via there, or you can uh, drop us an email. You can drop me an email. Um, as well, which is what Ryan Ricks has done, regular listener uh, of the podcast from Georgia, USA. So thank you very much for listening, Ryan. And uh, he has said this. I'm a City fan in the US and I have a question for possible discussion on the podcast. There we go. You, you ask, you get. We're, uh, we're going to discuss it a little bit now. Uh, he said, I have an American perspective on the role of captains on sports teams. And it may not reconcile completely with how captains are viewed in European football. You guys uh, talk repeatedly about how our team falls apart. That's a bit, I don't know if we were 
it quite like that, but I, I accept the premise of his point. Uh, seemingly every time we, we go a goal behind, I know maybe we did say that. We did, we did say that to be fair. Sorry, Ryan. And we showed a lack of composure over uh, the first half an hour against Stoke as well. Is it not an indictment on Hanley and as the captain, shouldn't the captain be bringing the guys together, calming them down and getting them organised? And Do you think stripping Hanley of the captaincy and giving it to someone else could have a positive impact on the pitch? So I think there's there's probably two facets to this point, Pad. One, probably the role of captains in in, in football, which is slightly different, I think, to, to what it is in, I'm not very American sport-based. I know you like, what was it, Dallas, that you at the hoodie you have? So so maybe you're a bit more uh, in tune with, with American. Go on, I've got it wrong, haven't I? No, no, Dallas Stars, but I've never, before yeah. I bought that top, I didn't even know there was a Dallas Stars, so I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't attribute Brilliant. me with any deep knowledge of American well, sport. Well, Ryan, sport, as, you, as you can tell, you've uh, you've targeted your question to the two guys who are absolutely best placed to answer it, but from my very, very extreme limited knowledge on American sports, the role of the captain, and it's the same with cricket, right? I think in cricket, it's a it's slightly enhanced role for the captain in football, but yeah, I mean, to, to put those questions to, to you, Pad, I mean, do do you agree with with Ryan's assessment there? Does that mentality? I guess maybe we'll broaden it out because I don't I don't want to target Grant Hamley directly, but probably you, you'd you'd want to put it on the senior leadership group, wouldn't you? Is is there enough of that at Norwich City at this moment in time? And and is that to explain what we've spoken about in the past about this group and David Barkin has spoken about it as well, really struggling with adversity. And I'd probably branch it out even wider when Dean Smith was in charge. He answered the question. I think I might have asked it to him actually about. Um, there not being enough captains in this Norwich City group. So that there is a theme, I guess, of, of leadership um, from David Wagner, from Dean Smith, and probably what we've seen with our own eyes this season. Yeah, I guess there's no... I mean, you can't really definitively say one way or the other, you know, in terms of is it is it a lack of leadership on the pitch? Um, because, you know, if we, if we did want to sort of focus in on Grant Hanley, you know, he's... He's he's won two titles at this level, uh, not him individually on his own, but but he's he's led a group to to win two championship titles. So, you know, he has proven at this level that he can effectively galvanise a group of players. But uh, but you know, it it ha- is and has always been in recent times at Norwich about the group and about Tim Krul and and Kenny McLean and and maybe Timu Puki and. And obviously, Tim Krul isn't on the pitch now, uh, as we've discussed at length with Angus Gunn and. You know whether that's altered the dynamic in terms of during games. Uh, I don't know. Again, it probably needs some serious sort of um, under the bonnet analysis. But you know the adversity point. It's worth stressing that was David Wagner who flagged that. You know that that wasn't something that somebody outside the group has sort of pondered or, or wanted to put forward as a theory. That's that's the guy in the dugout who's working with this group of players and felt he could detect that both good and bad. He also talked about it in terms of when they score goals and they maybe just, you know, lost a bit of focus and let the game get a, get away from them. The Coventry game being the obvious example. But, um, you know, for me, it's ultimately probably the focus is on this now because things aren't quite where anybody would have expected them to be this season. And, uh, you know, as Andrew Mabamba Daly alluded to, we touched on it earlier in the pod, you know, they didn't expect to be in this position. So, you know, for that, there aren't, multiple factors and uh, and maybe that leadership element is is one of them i i think it's it's no secret that grant hanley leads by example rather than you know somebody who's probably going to inspire with his words or and you know would you would you would you hand on heart say that he's been as consistent as he has been in previous seasons at this level i'm not sure you know if his performance levels aren't quite where they need to be then you know 
that probably hinders him a little bit in terms of, of leading the group because of the style of leader that he is. Uh, ben Gibson's been in and out of the side. Timu Puki's been in and out of the side. Kenny McLean's been a constant um, and he's quite a vocal presence, but you know, you need more than one of those. And, you know, you look around the rest of the team, you've got, um, you know, the South American lads, you've got a lot of young players there as well. It's, um, it's definitely not coalesced in, in in the sense that you feel this group can deconstruct it on the pitch and sort things out and problem solve and lead. And 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 that's why ultimately why they are where they are, where they're outside the playoffs trying to scramble inside. But on the evidence of the last three games, they won't they won't quite have enough about them. And that's not just in terms of ability. I think that might be some of the, the character traits as well. And um, that's not a slight on anybody. That's just the evidence that we see, you know, that all three of these games, there was opportunities for them and they didn't take them. Now, the reasons why that is are multiple. And, and one of those, I think, probably is. There is a brittleness to this group collectively and maybe individually. And, and when they face a little bit of adversity, they don't seem to be able to power through it and come out the other side, as we've seen from previous Norwich Collective. So those questions on leadership more broadly, I think, are fair and they're valid. And, um, and that's something, again, for, as part of a, if it is to be a summer refresh, that will have to be addressed. That you need, you need to find those characters and then build build a team around those type of characters. They obviously need to have the ability, but but certainly in the championship as well, the muck and nettles of the championship and you know the Saturday Tuesday relentlessness of it as well. You do need a certain type of character, and maybe when the dust settles, um, we'll be able to look at it dispassionately and say there wasn't enough of those type of characters in this group. And that isn't a, a criticism of Grant Hanley and Grant Hanley alone. I think it's a far broader look at captaincy leadership in the round rather than you know the guy who walks out the head of the queue with the armband yeah I, th- I think in in terms of uh the comparison between maybe american captains and i guess i'd throw cricket into i know a lot more about cricket which is why i'm throwing it in which is why i'm throwing it in but um the captain i guess is almost akin to the like a manager isn't it that, that's that's probably the the natural comparison in football i think you see coaches take a lot more of the the flack um in 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 football than than in other sports and i guess that that maybe is the obvious link to, to captaincy in other sports so a cricket captain is almost like a football coach really um i know they have various coaches and stuff in in the background so not exactly but i mean in terms of how the spotlight is shone upon them um it feels like it's always directed more towards the guy on the touchline rather than the guy with, with the armband uh unless it's i don't know manchester united or something where, where it seems to get discussed uh pretty pretty uh pretty a lot uh pretty a lot it seems to get discussed a lot good english ryan thank you very much for your question thank you very much for listening as well in uh in, in georgia usa and as i said right from the start if you uh, want to get in touch with the the pod uh, i think we don't want this just to be our discussion and we'd, we'd like you guys to shape it as well. So get in touch if you can. And uh, if you'd uh, like to share the podcast on, on social media or do anything like that, it's, it's massive for Paddy's ego. So tell him how how great he is. It's an, an absolute necessity. Uh, so so if nothing else, then then do that. What, what have you been drinking today, Connor? It's, it's a barber <laughs> minute, this. Well, you know, I just, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. It's not personal. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get people involved. Uh, let's, 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 let's end the pod then pretty swiftly, Pat, before we, we get into a fist fight or something um, and, and talk about the, the remaining eight games. Um, it, it, it's set up, as, as we said, even though the, the feeling and maybe how close they are, the, the proximity to the playoffs uh, are, are slightly different. They feel, as, as we've said throughout this, a lot further away than, than what they are. It is only three points. They've got eight games left. Um, I think uh, Chris Sutton's column, which is, is available to read on Wednesday, he has put it around five games that they're going to need to win to absolutely guarantee themselves a spot in the playoffs. Um, 
we like to end the pods with targets and 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 stuff like that. So if you were to put a number on the amount of games that is needed for them to to get into the into the playoffs, I mean, uh, before we focus in onto the next one, just just I, I might I might limit you to a one word of this actually. How many of the eight are they going to have to win to to get inside the top six? Well, my basic maths tells me uh, that would only get them to seventy-two points. I think that would be um, that would be very very you, skinny to get into the top six. You so, think more so than for five? Me, it's probably. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd say definitely more. If 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 you want to put it beyond doubt, I think seventy-five. I saw a stat would have got you in sort of eight out of the last ten seasons. I've completely pulled up from thin air, but that sounds about right. Which would be six wins, wouldn't it? So. You know, I mean, I'm lucky. I've got the fixtures in front of me. I mean, as I say, Sheffield United, Blackburn, Rotherham, Middlesbrough. Well, this is the big run, isn't it? The, the next four games are the big run yeah. against teams in the round. And we've we've spoken yeah. liberally before about how poor the record is. If they go, if we're going to find out, it feels one way or another. Come the come the end of that Middlesbrough game, which is fantastically on a Friday night. Now, brilliant. Um, we are probably going to have our answer one way or another, aren't we, about whether this Norwich City group is going to get the playoffs. And I guess by our own limits, if we both think they need to win five or six uh, of the remaining games, we will have our answer come the end of that Middlesbrough game. Possibly. We unless unless they've won yeah. them all. Unless they've won them all. Well, if they've won them all, then uh, then we'll have our answer in a positive light. Because, yeah. that, because yeah. at that point, with four games left, I think they probably only need a, another couple of wins. And, and those remaining four are QPR... Home, away, sorry, Swansea at home, West Brom away, and Mick McCarthy's Blackpool at home. So, yeah, it's it, it really not to overly hype it, but it is probably the, ne- the next three out of the next four uh, because they've got Rotherham obviously at home on Easter Monday. Well, even that's a dangerous one though because yeah. they're fighting for their lives, and yeah, uh, I think you we're at the there, stage yeah. of the season where where those games at the bottom can almost be probably more dangerous than teams in mid table who are just kind of pottering along at this point. Yeah, but what I would say is, you know, they've taken two points from the last nine available. If they only take two points from the next nine, then we know it's it's gone because they'll have left themselves too much to do. So, you know, we don't want to hype it too much, but inevitably this game on the resumption, Saturday, April 1st, April Fools, make it out what you will. Well, it's the biggest game of this season, no doubt about it. Sheffield United at Carrow Road. Anything less than a win, then it's it, then you're basically going to get to the point where it's it, the game's up essentially, and it's when the game's up rather than is the game up. So uh, you you can't cut it any other way because because they haven't performed in terms of the points haul against Sunderland, Huddersfield, and Stoke. The degree of difficulty is now ramped up to the extreme end of the the scale that they need to probably. Certainly not lose to Sheffield United, Blackburn, Rotherham, and Middlesbrough, but ideally harvest more wins than than not. So um, that's that's basically the situation they've they've left them in now because they've been in terms of points haul so poor in the last three games, and uh, and that's why I guess Wagner felt the timing was right straight after Stoke, knowing what's on the horizon, to basically say right that's it enough enough's enough forget what's gone before it's all about the here and now starting with Sheffield United and. It, in theory, probably Sheffield United through to Middlesbrough. So probably by Good Friday night, April the fourteenth, we might know whether uh, whether it's uh, get that hotel booked for Wembley uh, provisionally asterisk, or it's cancel the booking and um, and get ready for another season in the Championship. Yeah, and if you do decide to book a, a hotel at Wembley off the back of Paddy's remarks, there you you can't invoice us for that. By the way, that's at your own discretion. Just no, to no. Add that. 
no disclaimer. Okay. Yeah, complete disclaimer. No, no, I'm just saying. I think there was was it after Millwall. There was a few who'd already. Yeah, they were yeah, tongue in cheek yeah. and on talk to social to say they've already booked their hotels. So yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking more of those characters. Yeah, I, I think you'd be unwise in the extreme at this point to go ahead and, and book a hotel for Wembley, but you never know. You you do never know. And I think actually we've been fairly consistent. I know it's been quite up and down this season, but I think we we've said pretty consistently for the last month or so that we we both feel they they're gonna fall just short. So uh, hopefully they'll prove us wrong and, and prove that we know absolutely nothing uh, whatsoever uh, in the games coming up. But there we go, we've got two weeks to stew on it now, an international break, I guess. A lot of the uh, Norwich City focus, at least, will be on Angus Gunn and how he gets on for Scotland. Of course, we'll bring you uh, all the updates, all the relevant lines, as we have done so far from the players away from the camp. Uh, Also, as we build up to Sheffield United next weekend as well. So um, two weeks just to take stock and then eight absolutely massive games without ramping them up too much, particularly the next four or so. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast and to uh, every podcast so far this season. Of course, hope you in, uh, hope you enjoyed the show, even even the nonsense. And uh, we will be back. When will we be back, Pat? Are we going to do one next week? Are we gonna, are we gonna, I'll let you decide. Are we going to hold it until after Sheffield United? Or should we let the people decide? Let the people decide. Power to the people, Connor. Power to the people, absolutely. So so come back to us um, on when you'd like to see an next pod and we'll, we'll be happy to supply one. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again pretty soon.